We've now come to the last part of chapter 7 of the letter to the Hebrews. Chapter 7, verse 26. 726. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We put our full confidence in him, and we pray that you will help us to understand better the faith that we have in Him and the confidence that we have. We pray that You will show us His uniqueness, show us His greatness, show us that we should put our trust in Him and Him alone. For we ask in His name. Amen. If you think about it, there are all kinds of opinions about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Everybody has an idea. If we were to just... Uh, take a survey of the major religions of the world, we could note what people think of Jesus Christ. People think of Jesus Christ in many, many different ways. For example, if you were to ask a Hindu who is Jesus Christ, he would say, he is one of the gods, one of the manifestations of the gods, and he is an avatar. He is a manifestation because there are many, many manifestations of God in the world, and he is one of them, one enlightened one. And he, in fact, practiced Hinduism. He was a Hindu guru. He came and visited India, and so on and so forth. He believed in reincarnation and everything like that. Whatever Hinduism teaches, that's what Jesus believed. He is one of the 333 million gods. And the way of (laughs) salvation, therefore, would be to do whatever your station in life calls you to do. And salvation to them is simply not coming back into this world many, many times because you come back millions of times. And then when you stop coming back, then you become like a drop of water in the ocean. So that's what they think of Jesus, and Jesus fits into that paradigm of theirs. If you were to ask a Buddhist, a Buddhist will say something similar to that. In, in fact, They would say he was very good and a very good teacher, so forth. That's what they would say about him. And what they would add is that, not that you would be like a drop of water in the ocean, but in Buddhism, you would reach nirvana. And Jesus believed in nirvana. Jesus taught nirvana, and he fits into nirvana. Nirvana, to them, is nothingness, extinction. You cease to exist. Of course, after you've come into the world many, many, many times, millions upon millions of times. If you were to ask a Muslim, who is Jesus and why did he come into the world? Well, he was a prophet. He was born of a virgin, yes. He performed many miracles, yes. But he was a prophet. He was not the son of God. He was not the son of the Father. He was a prophet. And he came to teach people, the Jewish people in particular, and only them, and also to prepare the people for the coming of Muhammad. You see... The Bible in John chapters 14, 15, and 16 predict Muhammad coming. The Comforter, the Advocate, that is Muhammad, they say, not the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit is Muhammad. 
but Muhammad is the focus. He is the final prophet and the greatest of all the prophets, and Jesus is subsumed under that. In fact, Jesus never died in history. He never died on the cross. Judas Iscariot died on the cross. Jesus never died on the cross. He never rose from the dead. Therefore, his death could not be a payment for our sins because he never died. That's according to Islam. You see how these religions are skewing the identity and ministry of Christ. It, they, the two are interwoven, intertwined. And if they compromise the identity, they compromise the ministry. If they compromise the ministry, they compromise the identity in one way or another. Ask uh, an atheist, ask a communist atheist, ask somebody like that, a secularist, atheist, communist, who is Jesus Christ? Well, they'll say if he actually lived, because it was a, a fad at a, a point in liberalism and communism to say he never existed. It's just complete fiction and legendary, legendary for us to believe that he existed. But these days, that does not have too much credibility, even among liberals. But they will say, okay, he existed and he was a good teacher. He was a good teacher, he was a moralist, and he was a social worker. He helped the poor. So that's what they will give to Jesus. But they won't give to him that he was the unique son of God. They will not give to him that he preached eternal life and the day of judgment. They will not give to him that he died on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for our sins if we believe in him and that he miraculously rose from the dead the third day. They won't give him any miracles because they don't believe in miracles. Everything to them is naturalism. There is no supernaturalism in the communist atheistic worldview. Or even let's come a little closer. Let's come a little closer to Catholicism and all the many other denominations within Christianity and the, the cults within Christianity. Who was Jesus? Yes, they say Jesus was, Catholics will say, yes, Jesus was the Son of God, but you, you see, he was a redeemer, but there was a co-redeemer. Mary, Mother Mary, a co-redeemer to Christ. And you cannot get to heaven unless you believe in Mary, you pray for, uh, to Mary, and she prays for you. She intercedes for your salvation. Mary does, Mother Mary. That's what they believe. Not only that, but they believe you have to have faith plus works to be saved. This is why they have such an elaborate system of obedience, because if you don't obey in every way they say, from generation to generation, from pope to pope, then you won't be saved. Or it will take you longer to be saved. After you die, you have to go to a place known as purgatory, where there are flames and there's punishment. You are purged of whatever you've done wrong on the earth for a long, long time, thousands and thousands of years. You are purged in that place, and then eventually you'll get to heaven. So faith plus works plus purgatory plus another thousand things, all the works that you must do on this earth to get to heaven. This is in Catholicism. Well, many of the denominations within Christianity and the cults, they teach the same thing. They teach the same thing. The Church of Christ teaches its faith plus baptism plus a, a, a bunch of other things they teach. Pentecostals will teach its faith plus speaking in tongues plus this plus that. They teach all kinds of things. The Wesleyans, the, the Methodists, they teach the same kind of thing. They say 
faith plus this plus that. You must do these good works, otherwise you will not get to heaven. And if you don't do these good works, you lose your salvation. All of these people say that you will lose salvation or your salvation is in jeopardy if you don't do these certain good deeds. And as well, what about Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses? These are cults within Christianity. They also misidentify and misunderstand the ministry of Christ. They don't understand who Christ was and what he actually came to do. Mormons think that Jesus is one God among millions upon millions of gods, and he came to teach us how to become a God ourselves, and to have hundreds and hundreds, numerous, innumerable goddess wives to procreate in heaven, spirit babies, and then we possess and become gods and goddesses over other planets in the universe. This is Mormonism. Jesus was Michael, uh, <coughs> Jesus was Michael, they say. He was Adam, the first man, who then became God. That's what Jesus was and is to them. So when he died on the cross, yes, he died, but that's not enough. That's not sufficient. His death isn't enough. We have to obey. We are saved by grace after all we have done. They have a verse that says, in one of their books, it says, we are saved by grace after all we have done. So yes, believe in Jesus in this and that way, but you have to do all of these other things in order to go to heaven. Jehovah's Witnesses. Who is Jesus? He is Michael the Archangel, the first and foremost creation of God. God created Jesus as Michael the Archangel, the first one he created, the first thing he created, and then Michael or Jesus created everything else in the universe. And when he came into the world and he died on the cross, he didn't die for our sins. He, he died to make it possible for us to do good works to get to heaven. But only 144,000 of us get to heaven. Not all of us get to heaven. All the rest of us live for a time on the earth in the life to come. And then there is annihilation. There is an extinction, according to Jehovah's Witnesses. And also, Jesus did not rise from the dead. Jesus did not rise from the dead in a bodily form. He manifested himself bodily, but he did not rise bodily, they say. He did not have a physical resurrection. And there is no physical resurrection for all eternity for all of us either. Now, with all of this confusion, with all of these doctrines and things that people teach, how is it that we could have a correct view of the identity of Christ and the ministry of Christ? I submit to you that if people would simply read their Bible, read their Bible, that a lot of this would just dissipate. It would go away if they would simply read their Bible. Not read the interpretations of anybody, but simply read their Bible. They would come to see that many of these beliefs, both within Christianity and outside of Christianity, are bizarre, they are dangerous, they are contradictory, they have nothing to do with what's in the Bible. It's completely absurd at least absurd, if not blasphemous. Many of them are blasphemous. But if reading the Bible is too much, then why not read a short letter like Galatians? Or if you can take a longer letter, that one has six chapters, if you can take a longer chapter or a longer letter like Romans that has 16, simply read Romans, just 16 chapters. It doesn't take long. Just read that, or even read this letter that we are studying, Hebrews, 
which has 13 chapters. Just read them. Just read one of these three again and again and again until you master its contents. It would solve so many problems in theology, so many misunderstandings on salvation, so many misunderstandings on the nature of God, the nature of us, and how to rightly know God through Christ. It would remove it all. Well, this, what I just explained, is what the apostle also faced in the first century. He faced the same thing. We all face it in every generation, in every place, in every culture, in every nation. It doesn't matter where you are. We will face these same temptations. We'll face these same uh, mistaken ideas and worldviews. We'll find them everywhere. That's why he took pains throughout this chapter, chapter 7, to explain correctly who Jesus Christ was and is and what he came to do. And he did so based on the authority of the Old Testament, the authority of the Word of God that his audience, his readers, would have known to be the authoritative scriptures, that they should know it, believe it, understand it, because that is what God revealed to them, first through Moses, in written form, first through Moses, and then the rest of the prophets. They knew that and they believed that, rightfully so. But they did not correctly comprehend what was in those books. That's what he's seeking to clarify. So as he clarifies in chapter 7, he comes to sum up to summarize in verses 26 to 28 everything he's just been saying. We should only put our hope in Christ. Only in Christ. And notice in this passage both who he is and what he has done. His identity and his ministry. Verse 26. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. Okay, after everything he said, he's saying it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. If all of this is true, that God has said about the coming of Christ into the world, then he has perfectly, he has uh, masterfully ordained and appointed for us to have this kind of high priest. Every religion has a mediator, a priest, right? Between the people, the, the, the common people, and God, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, Christians, we all have some kind of clergyman who bridges the gap between the people and God. Well, in Judaism, they did too. We know that to be Moses and Aaron, the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron. All of that was instituted by God. That was instituted by God, not like the false religions instituted by Satan, but this was instituted by God not for the purpose of saving them from their sins. It cannot be said enough. The law of Moses, the Mosaic rituals, the Old Covenant, everything that Levi and Aaron were supposed to do, all of that was not for their salvation. It was not for their eternal life and forgiveness of sins. They were there only in order to highlight and accentuate the fact that they needed Christ. They needed to have the coming of Christ set before them to believe in Christ, only in Christ. That's why he calls him such a high priest. He's elevating who Christ is. He is this high priest to us because God has made it this way. He's ordained it this way. He has planned it this way to bring about our salvation 
with this perfect high priest. And who is he? Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He heaps these adjectives to describe our high priest, Jesus Christ. He is holy, just as God the Father is holy. God is holy in that he has no imperfections. He has no impurities. He is perfect in every sense. He is unique. He is set apart. He is not like we are. Now, we do know that there are things in the Bible called holy, but in this context, he means holy not in the illustrative sense, but he means it in the absolute perfect sense, that Jesus is a holy high priest. Not holy like Aaron and the others would have a slogan across the forehead, holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord, as Moses told them to do. Yes, they were holy to the Lord in a sense, but not in the perfect sense. In fact, we read Psalm 99, and at the end of it, it said that God was an avenger of their evil deeds. Yes, Moses, Aaron, Samuel, they committed evil deeds too. And God was an avenger of their evil deeds. The clearest example is Aaron. Remember, Moses was on the mountain, and Aaron was down there as leader of the people while Moses was on the mountain. And the people wanted, they were anxious, and they wanted to worship, and they wanted to have a great time, and they wanted to make an idol. So they made a calf. He made a golden calf for them, even though God had told them never to worship an idol, never to make a golden calf. Don't even believe in their existence. They don't exist as real gods. Yet they did. And who led them all? Aaron did. Aaron did. And so Aaron was imperfect. He wasn't holy. He represented holiness, but he was not the epitome of holiness. The only one who epitomized perfectly holiness was Christ. He's the one. He is the only one who is holy. He was also innocent, innocent, not guilty of anything, not guilty of a wrong thought, a wrong word, a wrong deed. The people of old and all the priests throughout the Old Testament and all the ministers throughout the Old and the New Testament and throughout history, all of us are guilty. We deserve a penalty. We deserve death. We deserve the wrath of God. That's the way we are, but not Christ. He is innocent. No one could accuse him. No one can say of him that he committed a sin. That's what he already told us in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He's without sin, therefore he is without guilt. He did not sin at all. John 8, 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? Jesus threw out the challenge to the people, to his accusers. He said, which one of you convicts me of sin? Accuse me of sin. Convict me of a sin. Something I've said, something I've done, go ahead, do it. And they couldn't do it. Even Pilate had to wash his hands and say that Jesus was innocent. He committed no crime against the government. He did nothing wrong. Pilate had to admit that before he ordered his execution, thinking that he would be 
uh, cleared from the guilt of that execution. But no, he was not. Because Jesus was innocent, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.22 We also know John 1.29 John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How can the Lamb take away the sin of the world unless the Lamb is perfect? The lambs of the Old Testament that were offered on the altar were to be perfect ones, unblemished animals, without any spot, without any um, uh, defective features like uh, uh, blindness or lameness, nothing like that in the animal. They had to be perfect animals as a sign that Jesus would be the perfect lamb to take away our sins. So completely innocent without any blemish. Further, he's undefiled. Defilement. Defilement is also used to to describe Christ. Undefiled, which means we are defiled. And in what way are we defiled? We are defiled in two ways, both from inside of us and from outside of us. From inside of us, we are defiled, as Jesus explains in Matthew 15. He says, Matthew 15 18. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. This is what defiles us. It originates from within us and makes us impure. We are dirty, filthy, because We are defiled by what originates from without. But we're also defiled and polluted by the world. The world seeks to entrap us. The world seeks to entice us. It allures us and it says, yes, come come over here. Come over here. It's okay. Come, let's do this together. The world is the one that seeks to defile us. They are defiled. They are uh, corrupt. They are depraved. And then they say, come, join us. That's why Paul said, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. And James says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Do not love the world nor the things of the world. For whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. See, we become defiled and corrupted when we attach ourselves to the ways of the world. But Christ was not that way. He was undefiled. He did not succumb to anything internally or externally. Christ did not do so at all separated from sinners. So, though he lived among sinners, he was born into the world. He had a body of flesh and bones. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of, of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. He had flesh and bones. He, and he, with that flesh and bones, he died on the cross, contra Islam and contra Christian scientists. He had a body of flesh and bones. Yet he was separate, separated from sinners. 
uniquely, miraculously, he did not sin at all. He was among sinners, but he never sinned. Now think for a moment. Isn't that incredible? We know our own nature, and we know our own need to overcome what's inside of us. Let's not take what we say and what we do, just our own thoughts. Are not our own thoughts enough to arouse guilt in us? We know we sin, we sin all the time. But the Bible is making a declaration that no one can admit. No one can admit to having been just like Jesus. Muhammad could not say he never sinned. In fact, in the Quran itself, there's a dialogue, and Muhammad says of himself that he knows he has sinned, and he's not sure what's going to happen to him on the Day of Judgment. Muhammad. You could ask any Hindu, any Buddhist, you could ask any Mormon, any Jehovah's Witness, any Catholic, ask anybody of any religion, ask the atheists even, ask them about their own mind. If they are honest with you and tell you what's going on in their own mind, they are sinners. So this is an amazing statement to say that of all the people who have ever lived, the only one who is separated from sinners is Christ. The only one who is holy, innocent, undefiled is Christ. He's the only one. Now, if he is the only one, why go anywhere else? Why would anybody have the temerity to go anywhere else? If he is the only one, then don't go anywhere else. Don't go to yourself. Don't go to another. Don't go to another religion. Don't go to another prophet, a preacher. Don't go to anybody. Only go to Christ. And he says he's exalted above the heavens. Exalted above the heavens, which is repeating what he has already said in chapter 1. In chapter 1 it says, uh, When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After he made purification from sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is, at the right hand of the Father. Chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Christ, he says, is exalted above the heavens. Not just the birds, where the birds are in our atmosphere, the birds of the heavens. Not just where the stars are. Not just there, the stars of the heavens. But into heaven itself. And where he is in heaven itself, the highest heaven, the third heaven, where he is there, what do we know that happens there? According to chapter 1, all the angels are subjected to him. All the angels worship him. All the angels are beneath him. So he is above all of creation as the one who has been raised not only from the dead, in a resurrected body, but he's up there. And if he is up there, why is he there? As he's already told us, he is there because he makes intercession for us. Verse 25, 7.25, he's there because he is there to show us, to comfort us, to give us hope that we will also be there with him. As the unique Savior, the unique Lord and King of Kings, we will be there with him. That's why he tells us he's exalted above the heavens. No one else is that way. 
Joseph Smith? No. Charles Hayes Russell? No. Muhammad? No. They, they knew about themselves. It's very plain and clear as you read about who they are. They cannot say, they do not know the way. They did not know the way. In fact, they distorted the way, being sons of the devil. But we know the way, Jesus who has been exalted above the heavens. Yes, there were eyewitnesses, Acts chapter 1, who saw him elevated from his feet on the earth, elevated all the way up into the clouds, and angels spoke to them. So he did not die again. He did not simply disappear. Nothing happened like that. He was ascended and then seated at the right hand of the Father. Verse 27. He further describes Jesus and now more his ministry. 27. Who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people? Here is another contrast, a contrast that he has already mentioned. He mentions again that Christ did not need a daily sacrifice. He did not need to offer a daily sacrifice or even a weekly sacrifice or even a monthly sacrifice or a seasonal sacrifice or an annual sacrifice. And all of these were instituted under the law of Moses. He did not need to institute or offer up any of these for himself, for his own sins. Perhaps the clearest example of the fact that the priests had to offer for themselves first before they could be suitable for the people was on the Day of Atonement, the annual sacrifice. In Leviticus chapter 16, it clearly details that the high priest who was to offer sacrifices for the whole nation had to first offer sacrifice for himself and his household before he was equipped, before he was fitted, before he was prepared to do so for everybody else. Not Christ. Not Christ, he says. He never had to offer sacrifice for his own sins. Never. Never. And in fact, not only did he never have to offer sacrifice for his own sins, because it says in verse 27, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He was pure, he was spotless, he was blameless, without any imperfections, no sin whatsoever. And yet, he offered up himself once for all. He did not offer himself every day, every year, every month, nothing like that, just once. This was predicted, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, this was predicted that Jesus would offer up himself. So if he would offer up himself, then one time, is that not superior to offering up something many times? And then he offered up himself a human. Perfect human. Not a sinless human, but a perfect human. He offered up himself. They would offer up animals and grain. In this case, he offered up his own human life. He did that once for all. Who could not see by this contrast, who could not see by this comparison, that Jesus' sacrifice of himself, when he died and did not need to die, not for his own sins, that that is the penalty or that is the sacrifice 
That is the means of propitiation for our salvation. Only Christ is for our salvation. Verse 28. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. The law, the law of Moses, from the book of Exodus through Deuteronomy, the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. Yes, Moses, Aaron, Aaron's four sons. We see at least a clear example in two of Aaron's four sons, Nadab and Abihu, that they were weak because on the day of the inauguration of the tabernacle, they breached one of the, covenant, uh, one of the commandments and they died instantly by fire. On the day that it was supposed to be inaugurated, you would think that they would have great zeal to do it right. But they did not. And because they broke that law, they died instantly. So, these high priests were weak. Moses sinned, Aaron sinned, Aaron's son sinned, and any cursory reading of the Old Testament would show that the priests of the Old Testament were fraught with were fraught with infamy, with scandal, that there were few of them who were faithful. The rest of them were in it for the wrong reasons. And we could even consider our own time in the history of religion, that high priests are there who are imperfect, who are weak, who are selfish, who don't do it for the right reasons. Very few are faithful. But even among the faithful, they have their own sins. That's why he says, the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. Now, God said to do it that way, but he didn't say to do it that way so that that might be the way of salvation. He said to do it that way as a sign, an illustration, a type, a shadow of the ministry of Christ. We will see this more in the upcoming chapters, in chapters 8 and nine. We'll see how the apostle reiterates, even in the first part of chapter 10, 8, 9, and 10, that he reiterates, these things were symbols. These things were symbols and signs. They were signifying things. They weren't the actual reality. So, but in this case, even though the law appointed men who were weak, they are contrasted, as was done earlier in this chapter, but the word of the oath. God the Father expressed an oath, as it says in verse 20, and inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. God announced this word in Psalm 110 with an oath. The others were simply commanded, and that was sufficient. But God was showing to the people and to us how much more important this priest would be who was to come. That's why he swore. He swore an oath in order to highlight this fact, to draw our attention to the fact that Christ is the only way. Focus on him. Furthermore, he says, it came after the law. It came after the law. As you read the Old Testament, you know, Abraham comes before Moses, and then Moses comes before David. 
You know that. That's quite obvious in, as you read. In the reading of the Old Testament, that's the obvious nature of it. But also in the genealogies, if you pay attention any, to any of the genealogies, Abraham, Moses, David. That is the sequence. You could also do that chronologically. Abraham, 2000 B.C., Moses, 1500 B.C., David, 1000 B.C. If the law was the way of salvation, then how was Abraham saved? And how was Noah saved? How was uh, Enoch saved? How was Abel saved? How were, how were Adam and Eve saved? How were they saved if it depends on the law? Then, if it depends on the law, why is it that in 1000 BC, David in Psalm 110, which was quoted in verse 21, in Psalm 110, verse 4, David says, by the word of the Lord, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he records what the Father, God the Father says to the Son. You are a priest forever. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Why would that more important priest be mentioned by David if the law of Moses was the means of salvation? Why later, as he says, which came after the law? Why would David say that Christ would come and he would be a priest forever, a superior priest, an exalted priest, even better than any of the priests of Aaron? Why would he say that many years later and even say that later in history this would happen? Why would David say all that? Because that came after the law. If the law was the means of salvation, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, if that's what was embedded in the law, then why speak of any priest coming later? The reason? Because this priest had to come later since he was a son. Now when he says a son, he's seeking to describe the nature of Christ the nature of Christ. He was not merely a human descendant of his parents. Even if you go back to David and Judah and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even if you go that far back, and even back to Noah and to Adam, it was not merely that, that he was a son. He was a son of man or, or a son of mankind. He was not just that. That's not what he means. He means he was the Son of God. He had the nature of God, deity. He had a divine nature. He possessed the same divine nature as the Father and the Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. God is invisible. God is spirit, the Bible says. John 4, 24. And a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see me have. Luke 24, 36 to 39, Jesus said, Spirits are invisible. This is the way God is. And if God is this way, this Son of God possesses this and possesses this from eternity past, now and eternity future, in his divine nature. In his divine nature, then he came into the world, as we know from verses 26 and 27, he had a human body. He had a real, tangible human body. With a divine nature and a perfect human nature, he had those two in one person. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Christ, Jesus Christ. In one person, he possessed these two together. No one else, no one else in human history 
can claim that. No one else comes close to that. And if anyone does, they commit blasphemy. Only Christ. So, God with an oath appointed his son. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Isaiah 53.10 No one takes my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I lay it down on my own initiative, and I take it up on my own initiative. This commandment I received from my Father. John 10, 17 and 18. Jesus was perfectly appointed, perfectly set in human history to be our only means of salvation. And he says, finally, verse 28, made perfect forever. He was made perfect forever. He does not mean that he was simply or merely perfect in that he was sinless. Of course he was. But he's saying that all of these circumstances, everything that was ordained, everything that was purposed in God from eternity past, that unfolded in history, that came to fruition in Jesus' first coming, in his incarnation, everything was perfectly set up. It was made to be the perfect way of our salvation forever. In Christ, we have the perfection. And it's an everlasting perfection. It's an everlasting salvation. It's an everlasting forgiveness. It's an everlasting hope. Only in Christ. Forever. Not in any priest. Not in any other individual. In no one else. But only in Christ our Lord and Savior. He is the perfect means. The only means. The eternal means for our salvation. I trust that we will appreciate Christ more and more because eternal life consists of knowing Him. What is life worth living for unless it is living for eternal life and knowing Christ who gives us the means of eternal life? Let's live for Him. Let's believe in Him. Let's not compromise with anything else, anyone else, but only Christ. Christ, Christ alone. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you will give us a renewed love of Christ and give us a, a zeal for his truth, his righteousness, his word, his spirit, everything that we need. Build us up, Father, in the faith. Give us the power we need to live and to do your will. May we love you because we love your son. And we pray in his name. Amen.